0: Well, we left off last week in what I believe is the heaviest night Jesus ever experienced on this earth. It is Thursday night, as it were, in, in the week of Passover. And this night is, is the gathering of Jesus and his disciples. They're in the upper room, and that's where we left him last week as we left off. Jesus has been teaching. Judas is doing what Judas had planned to do and, and was paid to do to betray Jesus. And so that has already taken place. I believe by, by this point along the way, he's already left and gone out uh, to uh, tell the troops where to go. Jesus has a massive amount of teaching and this, this last supper would have lasted hours and hours and hours. Think, they have lived an entire day. There, there has been all of the stress and pressure of a full Thursday. Now we're late into Thursday night and going into the early hours of Friday morning as we prepare now, uh, after these words, to then head to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would pray with his disciples. And so... Um, that's the setting. That's where we're at tonight, and uh, I titled the sermon "Warrior of Love." Warrior of Love. I see in these verses uh, an incredible warrior in Jesus. He is a warrior like no other. I mean, he he is truly a warrior. In what he is doing requires incredible courage. He runs headlong in to the mouth of the lion. He says. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He knows what's coming. He knows Isaiah 53. We'll see where this lands us tonight as we study. He knows exactly what is going to unfold. The prophecies have been spoken. Those words must be fulfilled. And so as this night unfolds, increasingly it is evident Jesus is feeling the weight of the world on his shoulders. And in the midst of it all, he's dealing with a room full of sinners. Judas has betrayed. He's off. He's going. He's doing his thing. But that leaves 11 in the room who, sadly, we must acknowledge they are also sinners. And we'll see that unfold. So, warrior of love, Luke 22, verses 24 through 38 Our warrior king. I want to encourage us as we go through these things. You'll see on your sermon notes in the back of the bulletin. How can we be like Jesus? What does he call us to do? How can we exemplify what we see in him? And maybe not so much what we see in the disciples as we move through these verses. Okay, let's begin with a warrior's heart. Verses 24 through 30. A warrior's heart a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Okay, <laughs> it's just like, are you kidding me? Do you remember where we left off? Jesus' is teaching. Jesus is, is demonstrating. Mean, think of John chapter 13 all the way through 16 before he prays the high priestly prayer. All of this incredible teaching has come and Judas goes out to betray, and maybe because of his departure or something, all of a sudden there stirs up this conversation over the dinner table. Well, I mean, certainly I would be before you. I'm more important than you are. I mean, Thomas, you're constantly doubting, right? You're, you're not going to be very high on the ladder of importance in the kingdom, They begin comparing themselves to one another. They begin leveraging what they believe is their right, their reason to be closer to the throne. Who is going to sit on his right and his left? Well, certainly it would be the the sons of thunder, right? James and John. Now, we've been here before, haven't we? This is my thing. Like, really? We're going to do this again right now? At the last night with Jesus Think of how significant these words are. This is their final night with Jesus and they're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. In Luke chapter 9, we already had this argument. And Jesus said, hey, you guys are completely missing it. Come like the children with faith, like a little child. Come that way, not arrogant and waving your own boasting flag as to why you matter. Grace completely flattens anything that we would bring to the table, doesn't it? If we bring and tout our goodness, our deservedness, we deny grace. Here they are, three years with Jesus, and this is where we are, arguing about who is greater, who's going to be more prominent in the kingdom. Now, lest we're too hard on the disciples It's in us too. It's in us. It's a sinful inclination. How many times in churches has this happened? It may not be spoken, but these comparisons are subtle. They're sneaky, and they're deadly. They're toxic. The patience of Jesus on display here is incredible. Jesus is a patient Savior. He puts up with these these disciples, this ragtag bunch. He's investing in them. He's chiseled and shaped and taught them. And three years later, here we are cycling this way. That just had, had to just be so, oh, the inclination of Jesus to snap at him and, and just yell at him. With everything else I've got going on, with all that's coming my way, and you're doing this now? I mean, do, don't you feel that? Jesus is so patient. He responds and says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. That's what he said in Luke 9, remember? Like a child. The echo of the same teacher. Sometimes we just need to be reminded, don't we? And the leader as the one who serves. Servant leadership. Don't forget this, disciples. You're, you're, You're becoming like the world. Don't think that just because this is the way the world does it, that's the way that you should do it. We are to be separated from the world. We are sent into the world, but we are not to be of the world. We shouldn't look like the world. We should look like our Savior, Jesus. He goes on and he says, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? And then he says this, but I am among you as the one who serves. Think of this. Jesus doesn't have any uh, misunderstanding about who he is. There is no doubt about who the greatest is at the table. He's not making that case. What he is saying is, you guys are missing something really obvious. You're missing the fact that I'm the one serving you. How have you missed this? I am at the table. I am clearly God. I am the greatest at this table, and I am the one serving. That's the kind of leadership that you should show. How is Jesus serving his disciples? Well, the Gospel of John gives us a little glimpse into this. In fact, I think this has already happened because when Jesus did this, Judas was still present. Jesus, at the appropriate time, Listen to how it says. He laid aside his outer garments and he took a towel and he tied it around his waist. That is the dress of a servant. And then he poured water into a basin and he began one by one to make his way around the table and wash the feet of each of his disciples, including Judas. With a towel that was wrapped around him, he washed their feet. He cleansed the dirtiest part of them. This is the part that was dirty. It was covered with dung and dirt, and it was always customary, certainly at a Passover gathering like this, that those feet would have been washed as soon as they set foot in the door. But that hadn't happened. Why not? Well, who among the 12 is going to lower themselves to that role, right? They're, they're arguing about who's the greatest, and so you can just see it kind of passing around. Peter's like, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not, I mean, you guys, we all can agree, right? I'm supposed to be the lead guy. He called me Petros, Rocky. I, I, that's me. <laughs> Upon this rock, I'll be to, I'm not going to wash feet, and then James and John were like, we were there at the transfiguration. We're part of the inner three. But there's no way we're doing that. And then they start looking down the line. And one by one, they're all shirking their duty. Somebody should wash, at least start with Jesus and wash his feet. Why has this not been done? Pride. Self-righteousness. The echo of everything that is in the world is still ringing in the hearts of these disciples. And one final lesson Jesus has, a lesson they'll never forget. It is powerful. He begins to wash their feet as the servant in the room. There is no more uh, low and degrading way that Jesus... This is as low as he could go to be the one who served. The question Jesus says is, are we going to be those who elevate self? Are you going to live your life to make much of you? To point to you? Look at the name on that jersey, right? Don't forget that. You see the number? Is it going to be about me? Is it going to be about you? Or... Are we called to live for the glory of our King? Are we called to make much of our Savior, our King? This is a dividing line, friends. And for Christians, this should not be difficult to discern in our lives. This, this is one of the ways we shine in a world that is filled with self-promotion and self-esteem and self love, right? We stand out and we say, no, it's about Christ promotion and Christ esteem and Christ love. We, it's like night and day. It should be. How often in churches are pastors elevating themselves? How many times have we seen that story play out? How many times do successful Christian musicians forget to emphasize Jesus Christ as they sing? Don't just say, God, I'm talking Jesus. Tell the gospel. He gave you a stage. Now use it and don't point to yourself, right? Christian athletes, down the line. Now, sometimes we see this and we love it when we do, don't we? It's so right, it stands out. So a challenge for us tonight is let us resolve as believers to be those who are absolutely committed, tenaciously so, to the glory of Christ alone. We are not here to promote ourselves. We are here to promote the glory and renown of Jesus Christ. He must be greater. I must decrease, right? Jesus does not come into the room asking the question, how can you guys serve me? He comes into the room looking to answer the question, how can I serve you? How can I help? What can I do? How can I bless? How can I do the things that others would say, no, that's that's beneath me? Jesus is like, that's where I live. That's, That's my place. Come join me. Come join me. Hmm. You know, sometimes in the church we talk a lot about spiritual gifts and I think it's important to kind of figure out what is it that the Lord has wired me up to do for His glory and then live in that, right? But don't ever suggest that your spiritual gifts preclude you from the most menial task in church. Sometimes it's grab a vacuum and let it rip. Right? Sometimes it's, we had an issue in the bathroom and friends, that's happened. Trust me. Someone got, got to get in there and deal with that, right? Who's going to do it? There should be a a, 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 crowd at the door jammed up trying to get in there to fix that bathroom. How can I serve? How can I love? What can I do? As opposed to, here I am, tell me about the programs. What can I receive? I am here to take of the spiritual buffet and I will leave when I have received the services rendered. That's not church. That's a country club. Our dream is to be a church filled with people who delight to serve, delight to move, to initiate, to see that opening and run to it because we know that's where Jesus would be. We have a lot to learn from our warrior in his love, our warrior king. It is his heart. We see it over and over and over. It's his heart. It takes a brave and mighty warrior to wash feet when no one else will. That's the kind of warrior we have. It's a warrior of love. He goes on and he says, You are those, you, 11 here, are those who have stayed with me, which is interesting because Judas is gone. Judas has left the building. But you, 11, have stayed with me in my trials. Now that's both descriptive and prescriptive. Hang in there. It's going to get worse. You have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I underlined here how many times the word my showed up. Look at that. You stayed with me in my trials, my Father, my table, my kingdom. Who is this about? Is Jesus understanding this? He knows exactly who it's about. It's about Him. He's the King. It's interesting. It's almost as if He's saying, it's not about you, guys, in all the the right way to say it. Hang in there. Persevere. Don't give up. And when you have an opportunity, it's going to be an opportunity to serve. I think here... It's not so much a Gentile versus Jew thing. I think it's a believer versus unbeliever thing. We have the 12 tribes who have collectively decided to reject Jesus. They are going to have him killed. And those who remain faithful to him, even though it's hard and even though they're about to be scattered, they'll return and they will cling to him and they will carry his message. That's, persistence will bring them to the place where they will indeed sit on thrones and judge the world there is reward there is authority that will come but that authority is always pointing back to the king and there's only one of those so you could sum it up this way believers You have been chosen by grace. You have been saved by grace. You will be persevering and and preserved by grace. You will be seated at the table by grace and granted to serve the king by grace. Undeservingly so. Isn't grace beautiful? Isn't it amazing? These guys are arguing about who is the greatest if it wasn't about grace they're done it's over it didn't work they've failed but jesus shows them again you're going to make it and it's going to be of grace now a warrior's humility a warrior's humility verses 31 through 34 jesus now looks over to simon remember now he renamed him peter But here he calls him Simon, twice. This is a a, a wording of love and affection. Simon, Simon. But it's an ominous wording because he uses his old name. It's the pre, uh, the, the BC, the before Christ name he uses. And it's almost like he's saying, get ready. Get ready, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like Wheat. How is wheat sifted back in this day? They would take the wheat and put it on the threshing floor and they would beat it and pound it over and over, just, just wailing on it until those, those little seeds were loosened and the chaff would then be blown away as they threw it up in the air and the seeds would fall. That's what Satan wants to do to you, Simon. He wants to sift you like wheat. A few things to note here. Number one, Judas is already down. Satan has successfully launched an attack. He has taken Judas down. The betrayer is at work. He is out doing his thing. Even as Jesus speaks these words, there's probably money being exchanged. There's troops gathering their torches and their clubs and and beginning uh, to gather For his arrest that would come after some time of prayer. So Satan shifts his attention to Peter. It's interesting how he says this. He has demanded to have you, he wants to have you. Well, who is his demand to? He's demanded to have you. He comes to the Father with a demand. What's interesting about that is he's going to ask, right? He has to go and ask. So, like I said on my attribute video, lest we think that, that somehow God and, and Satan are, are like the yin and the yang or the, the good and the evil and there's some kind of balance in the force. And God is just like, oh, what am I going to do with this terrible devil? I don't know how to deal with him. Friends, reject all of that. Thing. That's not biblical. The cosmic battle that exists only exists to the degree that God allows it to exist for his purpose and his glory. Satan is a dog on a leash in the hand of God. He is God's devil. And he does nothing but for the permission that he is given by a sovereign God to do it so he goes in the beginning of job presents himself before god and god says have you considered job and satan says well it's because he's blessed let me go tear up his life a little bit and he'll turn and curse you you see what he's doing he's a beggar satan is a beggar he's pleading with god to allow him room to run that's exactly what he's doing here he allows him to go and to take on Job, but he says, you can go this far, but don't you touch his life. That's a sovereign God. He's sovereign over Satan. The same happens here. He demands to have Peter, and then look at this this response. He wants to sift you like wheat, but I, Jesus said, have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What's interesting about the response of Jesus here is that the answer that was given to Satan was not no. The answer that was given to Satan was you can have him, but I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned again, which presumes what? A failure. It, there's sin here. That we're talking denial of Christ is coming. When you have turned again or repented, then go and strengthen your brothers. I'm going to use this. I'm going to use this to teach you, to refine you. I like to think of it like steel that is heated in the furnace and then cold treated or put in the oil. Have you seen how they do that to harden it? That's what he's going to do with Peter. Peter has to go through this The furnace is lit and the fire is burning and here comes Satan to beat him like wheat. These are surprising words by Jesus. One thing to note is that God is able to use our weak and even sinful moments to reveal our need for him and build our faith in him. Let me say that again. God is able to use our weak and even sinful moments to reveal our need for him and build our faith in him. Let me be careful here. This is not a license to sin. This is not, I'm not suggesting sin it up that grace may abound. May it never be. No, I am saying that even your sin, God is sovereign enough to use as a chisel to show you the marvels of his gospel, the the incredible grace of God as he brings you to repentance and washes you clean and shows you the joy of obedience. Like a backdrop of black against a diamond of holiness, God can employ that very sin to show us how much more life-giving obedience is. And so Peter moves into this. Just also have to note this. Whenever Jesus prays, his prayer is answered because he prays perfectly according to the perfect will of God. That's a really cool thing to think. The other thing that's amazing, I would encourage you to do that this week, is go to John 17 and read the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for them and he prays for you. It's in there. You have to find it. He prays for you, believer. On that Thursday night, as he's with the disciples, the prayer of Jesus is always answered. Peter responds, okay, we kind of expect this from Peter. Here it goes. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And it's almost like Jesus is like, eh, eh. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you even know me. You're going to deny three times that you even know me before the dawn of the morning when the rooster crows. Now, think of all of the ways that God could have established that sign. He chose and sovereignly appointed... A rooster. Okay? Now, if ever there was a, an instrument of God's revelation of our sin, it, it, it could be a rooster. I had a rooster in Texas chase me one time. His name was Diablo. Okay? <laughs> he was a red rooster with talons. Man, that thing was deadly. And he ran me all over that ranch. My grandpa laughed and just watched me run. <laughs> God ordains in this prophecy that a rooster would be the very instrument of revelation of Peter's failure. Peter responds with this bravado, like, like warriors, right? I'm a warrior. I'm a zealot. Let's do this, right? Come on, bring them on. And Jesus is like, yeah, you can leave that at the door. You don't need that. It highlights the weakness of our strength, friends. It's so easy to fall prey into this. Oh, I'm just going to will myself not to sin. It's just going to be like, oh, I'm just going to be holy. I'm just going to have self-control, and I'm just going to be under control, and I'm not going to get upset, and I'm not going to do this or that. Oh, I'm going to be a warrior. Then I'm on my face saying what happened ever been there again and again and again i mean if a rooster crows then you're really i mean (laughs) friends we are prone to wander we are prone to trust in our own capacities it's in us that that is our inclination we are americans right we are self-made. Isn't that where we're supposed to be in this country? It's self-made. We do things the way we want. We did it our way. That's not how Jesus rolls. He's not impressed with this bravado, this warrior bravado. He cuts straight through it. In a moment, bam, he says those words. You've got to wonder, what did Peter think when he said the thing about the rooster? I don't think he really believed him. I don't think he did. I I, I think he was like, "No, no, I would never do that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Do you believe that, Christian? Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. If you don't do that, there will be no fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Our strength is to flow from the the, the roots that we sink into the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only foundation upon which we could build a life that will bear fruit for the glory of God. Peter has to be reminded at graduation night that his bravado is still hollow. And his strength is weak. Ironically, the words that Peter spoke were actually prophetic. Not because in his strength, but when that rooster crowed, God did something powerful in his life. It showed him his weakness. It humbled him. And when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, you talk about a new man Peter was bold like no one else. And he did go to prison and he did die for Jesus. Crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified right side up like his Savior and King. It's an amazing difference the gospel can make in our lives. It changes. Jesus is calling us to be humble and dependent warriors. We don't need to walk around with the bluster and the bravado, saber rattling. Oh man, we're just going to really get it. We're going to take on the world. That doesn't impress Jesus. I'll tell you what impresses Jesus is humble men and women who are on their knees depending upon Him every day, praying, trusting Acknowledging their weakness and saying, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness because when I am weak, then he is strong. That's the kind of warrior, a warrior of love that Jesus is raising up in us to be. Now, a wartime readiness, verse 35 through 38. Wartime readiness. These are interesting verses given our times. He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. Now, this this was kind of a miraculous thing that that happened twice. He sent them out two different times in groups and and he said, don't take anything for your journey. I'll provide for you. I'm gonna give you what you need. Don't take a knapsack. Don't take, uh, uh, you know, extra sandals or clothes. Don't take anything. And sure enough, the doors were open. They preached about the kingdom. They preached the good news. They went into a home. They took care of them. They didn't move around. They just stayed there. And, 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 and then when they had finished preaching, they went to the next city. But now things are changing. Listen to what he said. But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. We're all like, wow. Jesus believes in the Second Amendment. (laughs) That's awesome. What's he saying here? Bring some money. This is going to be a challenging work. I'm about to send you out. It's not like it was before. They're about to kill me. They're opposed to you. Don't expect that they're going to welcome you in. You won't be supported like you were. You need to bring some food and clothing, and you should bring a sword. Bring a sword. Now, I was fascinated to read the commentaries on this verse uh, because um, there are people who just want to work really, really hard to try to suggests that Jesus didn't actually say, sell your coat and buy a sword. But he said it. And I think we, we, we just need to honestly just let it be what it is. Those are actual words. He said those words. Is he suggesting somehow that we should advance the kingdom by the sword? Absolutely not. We know that. History echoes the horror of the Crusades. Insanity ensued. Accept Christ or off with your head. Is is that the way that the gospel advances? Absolutely not. There is enmity to this day because of the things that happened during the Crusades. That's not the only reason for it, but it echoes and it lives and it's real. When we say we are the army of God, we are not the army of God that brings the gospel by force, with violence, and by the sword. That's not who we are. We're a different kind of warrior. I just believe that Jesus is loving them and saying, Listen, you need to have faith filled provisions. So some people say, Listen, Christians really shouldn't own guns. I just disagree. I do. Right. Now, I'm not saying that you have to, but I believe it's not a lack of faith to own a firearm, to defend yourself. If someone's going to break into your home and threaten the lives of your family, I believe here there is a reason for it, and even in the Old Testament. There, there, is, there, there are verses that point to that it's not wrong to practice self-defense, to save lives. It's a different thing if you're going on the offense and you're running people down in your neighborhood okay that's not what i'm saying faith-filled provisions don't expect it to be easy christians and has this last month and a half not kind of woken us to the reality that that may in fact be more real for us in the coming years it's not a bad time to own a gun That's just me. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to overstate this, but I just think, you know, Jesus did not go after Peter or the other guys for carrying swords during the period of his ministry. He never said you shouldn't do that. He never said you shouldn't be carrying, it's a lack of faith if you're carrying a sword. No, they had swords, and we'll see, they have swords right here at the table. They have swords. Hmm. So, enough on that, we'll move on. I just thought it was interesting that the Lord would ordain that all of this stuff be happening and Jesus was like, well, go buy a sword. Then he goes on and he says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me and we should just pause here and just listen. Okay, what's he going to say? This, this is another prophecy he's about to fulfill. This scripture must be fulfilled in me and now he's going to quote and he was numbered with the transgressors. Where is that from? Isaiah 53, what's on his mind at the Last Supper? Jesus knows his Bible. He knows the prophets. He knows every single prophecy that is about to be fulfilled. They're all lined up in his view, one by one by one. In the coming hours, massive prophetic fulfillment is about to take place. Least of which is this. He was numbered with the transgressors. An innocent man, sinless, called a transgressor and given over to death on a cross. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. It's coming. The disciples are still stuck on the Second Amendment piece. They're like, but Jesus... Hey we got, we got some swords. I, I, I just again, Jesus is so patient with us, isn't He? Peter's over there like, first he's thinking about this rooster. And then he was, a, "What sword? I got a sword. Here, check it out. I just sharpened it, right? He lays it on the table. We got swords. Here are two swords, and Jesus says, "It is enough. It is enough." Now, there's a lot of work to try to figure out what do those words mean? Is that just exasperated? Jesus just, oh, it's enough. You missed what I said about Isaiah 53. Or is he saying that'll be adequate? One thing we know that the garden is coming and Peter is going to draw one of those swords and try to prevent what Jesus is saying seeking to accomplish in fulfilling isaiah 53 so it's not time to use a sword there peter we'll look at that next week Hmm. jesus says i'm about to fulfill isaiah 53 and i think in large part the disciples just they just don't they don't understand how can this be happening what do you mean by this we don't we just don't want to figure this out we'd rather not know what that means And so we have a call. It's a different kind of war and a different kind of warrior that Jesus is raising up. He is truly our warrior of love, and He calls us to be an army that is sent out into a world that is lost, desperately in need of the love of Christ. Who are we fighting against, friends? we got to keep this clear in our minds. Sometimes you get on the news and you see stuff going on down there and you're just like, oh man, there's the enemy. No, that's not the enemy. Remember this. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We wrestle with Satan and his cohort. He is the one who has blinded the minds of unbelievers and keeps them slaves to their sin. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Don't miss that. Listen to what Paul's saying. We're not trying to raise an army of Christians to take on the anarchists. That's not what our goal is. We are waging a war not according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they do have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we can see strongholds, can't we? Evil, darkness. We are called to wage a war that breaks through the strongholds. And in large part, that war is waged on our knees. It's a war of love. So Christians, we are called to be warrior servants who live for the glory of our King, who walk in humility and war in love. That's our call. That's our call. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for the example of our warrior King. We thank You for His strength. Oh, we need it. We thank You for these patient words that He gave these disciples who sometimes they just just didn't get it. And Lord, I put myself there. I, I often just miss what You're calling us to do. Lord, keep us from this this bravado of, of somehow we're going to rise up in our strength and get the mission done and, and all these things. Lord, we, we confess our inclination to trust our own strength. We confess pride. We confess how often we, we worry about where we fall in the order of importance. We confess that sometimes we live lives that deny the very grace that we hold out to a hurting and lost world. We pray that you would refine us. Thank you for the way that you employ even the furnace to strengthen and and, and build our faith, to harden the steel of our resolve to trust in you. Father, make us warriors of love, filled with grace, ready to speak, ready to stand, bold, courageous, tenacious, and soft-hearted, and kind, and gentle, and filled with self-control, words of grace and truth. Oh, Lord, these are not easy things. We need you every step of the way for this. We thank you that your prayer for us was not just in John 17, but that even now you intercede for us at the right hand of our Father, Thank you, Jesus, for that work. We pray, Lord, that you would grow us and strengthen us. And even this week, use us to be this kind of warrior. Help us stand out on social media in the way that we engage and interact. Help us to be careful in the words and responses that we give when we're in situations that give opportunity for us to shine. Use us, we pray, Lord, to bring glory to you and your Son, Jesus Christ.